0: The nation's capital. This is DC Public Safety. I'm your host, Leonard Sipes. Ladies and gentlemen, back at our microphones, Adam Gelb. Adam is the director of the Public Safety for Performance Project at the Pew Charitable Trust. slash public safety. Adam and Pew, if, if one of certainly one of the best organizations, if not the best, in terms of fundamental change within the criminal justice system, and that's today's show title fundamental change within the criminal justice system. Adam Gelb, welcome back to D.C. Public Safety.
1: It's it's great to be with you again, Len.
0: Adam, this is such an interesting topic because it is bubbling up all throughout the United States, fundamental change in the criminal justice system. Pew has done a yeoman's job in terms of working with a wide variety of state and counties and cities to try to analyze their criminal justice system and to come up with ways to protect public safety but do things differently, correct? Correct.
1: That's right. And Len, there are really two pieces of uh, knowledge that have driven a lot of this over time. There's a political dynamic that's been afoot in the country for a long time that said we should just be tough on crime and lock as many people up for as long as possible. But the extent to which there are two pieces of information that have driven this, one is that the the notion that if you kept prisons growing – then you would keep crime shrinking, right? So if we just kept building more and more prisons and locking up more and more people for longer, then crime would fall. And the second has been that on an individual level, if we kept offenders behind bars longer, they would be less likely to reoffend when they got out. Those are the two sort of relationships that have underlay a lot of the policy in this area. And it turns out both of them are not true. And that research that we've done on a national level, many other organizations have as well, but also at the state level, has really shown that those are, in fact, myths. That you can reduce in crime and incarceration at the same time, and that keeping most offenders in for long periods of time actually – Doesn't do anything to reduce recidivism. It increased costs, it certainly increased punishment, and many offenders may be deserving of that. But longer lengths of stay do not equate to lower levels of recidivism.
0: But one of the fundamental.
1: Go ahead, Adam. Well, we start to see these numbers in the states, and it's been over five years now, Len, that states have been reducing crime and incarceration rates, that this ironclad relationship that a lot of people thought existed between rising imprisonment and falling crime – uh, is is no longer the case. And then you know, with respect to studies in individual states, when you compare uh, similar offenders who have different lengths of stay and make other changes, we see no evidence there either. And these two fundamental pieces that are starting uh, to crumble is what's fueling a lot of the fundamental change in the, in the justice system that you talk about.
0: What you're talking about improving public safety. You're talking about making people safer, focusing on people who are truly dangerous, uh, doing quote-unquote something else with all the others. Um, So we're not just talking about lessening the rate of incarceration we're just not talking about fewer people going to prison your fundamental message is is not that your fundamental your fundamental message is we can protect public safety and at the same time use our resources to their best possible advantage that's exactly right okay but why So what started all this? What started this discussion about we don't have to send everybody to prison, we don't have to send everybody to prison for the length of time that we've done in the past? Where did this conversation start, and why did it start? We really trace it back,
1: Len, to Texas, and you and I have talked about this a number of times, that in 2007, the Texas legislature, and Rick Perry was governor, just said no to the corrections department's request to build another 14 to 17,000 prison beds over the over the coming 5 years. Now this is the state Texas that uh, in 1987 had 50,000 people in prison and 20 years later had 150,000 mm-hmm. people in prison and we're being asked in that legislative session to keep on that same path and to keep building. And there's an assumption out there, I think, Len, that that a lot of what's happening in the criminal justice arena today and over the past few years has been driven by uh, need to save money and by budget concerns. And there's no question about that. You'd be naive to think that that doesn't play into it at all. But if you think back to 2006, when the plans in Texas were beginning to hatch and then into 2007, the economy was humming at that point. Uh, In fact, Lehman Brothers didn't collapse till the fall of 2008, and the economic downturn started at that. Point. And so, um, you had a situation in Texas where leadership just said, "No, we're not going to keep continuing on this path. Let's find some more cost-effective things to do, even though they weren't under uh, the budget gun at the time." And as you can imagine, I mean, Texas is the very symbol of law and order in this country. Nobody believes that if Texas is going to do something on criminal justice, it is going to be soft on crime or soft on criminals. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Texas did what it did in 2007 has resonated very loudly in capitals around the country. And more than any other single thing, I think, has helped motivate this wave of reform that we're seeing.
0: In my discussions with my counterparts throughout the country, I, I think it's justifiable to say that every governor in the United States has had a conversation with every public safety secretary, director of corrections in the United States and the fundamental question is how can we bring down our expenditures? Because in many states, corrections is the second largest expenditure uh, in their states. And I've seen in some states it's, it's close to being the first or the largest expenditure that every governor has had a conversation with every public safety secretary basically saying how could we protect public safety and control our, the amount of money going into corrections? Is that, is that right or wrong?
1: Well, I can't speak for all 50 states, but certainly there have been over 30 states now that have enacted some type of comprehensive reforms, and, and those conversations in those states uh, have happened. And it's this Texas example where not only did they not build those prisons, but they put uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into various alternatives, the proverbial something else you mentioned a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. uh, various treatment and diversion options uh, on both the front and, and the back end of the system, uh, and the results they've gotten, which include a dramatic reduction in parole revocations, include now uh, cumulative about $3 billion in savings, they count, from not having to, to build over what is now the past seven years, and most importantly, the crime rate in Texas falling right in tandem with the national average. So those kind of results uh, speak loudly to governors and corrections directors across the country.
0: And the conversation is just not Pew. I did want to point that out. I mean, I, I love Pew, and I think Pew is truly the leader in in this. But it's the Department of Justice. It's lots of other agencies uh, at the national level who are joining together. National Council of State Governments, uh, American Probation and Parole Association, many others are all coming together and pretty much basically saying that there's no way that the criminal justice system can continue as it's been. Uh, We can't afford it or they're fundamentally opposed to it philosophically. But for whatever reason, this conversation has been going on since the recession and Pew certainly has been at the forefront of it. But explain to me and explain to the audience what that means. You go in and work with the states to analyze their systems and take it from there.
1: Sure, and I appreciate your kind words and pointing out the partnership that that Pew does have with the Justice Department, Attorney General Lynch, Assistant Attorney General Carol Mason, in particular the Director of the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Denise O'Donnell. Uh, It really is an extraordinary public-private partnership. It's not just that in name, but that – that we really couldn't be doing this kind of work and supporting the states in this way with, without the relative strengths that we have in our organizations and this partnership and uh, what we what we do is uh, have conversations with leadership in these states and and assess the extent to which they are ready willing and able to tackle a a comprehensive analysis of their system and then act on the findings and uh, there have been uh, as we said a few minutes ago, Uh, more than two dozen. It's really coming up on three dozen states now that have raised their hands and said, "Eh, we want want to do this process, which we call justice reinvestment. And once they do that, uh, the participating states then go through uh, at least three phases of work. Uh, The first is an analysis of their system to identify what's been driving the prison growth and where the correction systems in those states are and are not in alignment with evidence-based practices. Uh, Once those things are are ascertained, and you move to the second phase, which is policy development, saying, okay, we know where the, the, the problems are, what the, the solutions, and what does the research tell us about what would be effective, and what does the evidence from other states that have done reforms tell us about what works and what doesn't. And we help facilitate consensus. Uh, on a bipartisan interbranch working group that includes prosecutors and defense counsel as well as uh, legislators and corrections officials uh, on, a, on a comprehensive package of reforms. And then the last phase, of course, is to make sure that this is not a great report with wonderful recommendations uh, based on evidence and data and research that then sits on a shelf. And so we do provide support to uh, these working groups and the state leadership to help make sure that the recommendations cross the finish line in the legislature uh, and are
0: are implemented. You mentioned it before. I want to hammer it home. Within the majority of the states that you've worked with, rates of incarceration have come down concurrently with crime decreasing. Am I right or wrong?
1: That's correct. More than 30 states now in the in the past five years are seeing reductions in both crime and incarceration rates.
0: And that's phenomenal, don't you think? Because, again, we have spent Decades, if not longer philosophically believing that the more people you lock up, the safer people are going to be
1: that's absolutely right that's one of those two myths we talked up about up front, and more than half the states now are dispelling it and it's it's a hugely important piece of the puzzle here i can't can't overstate it.
0: Okay, and I just want to refocus again that people who are truly violent, dangerous, we're not talking about them. We're talking about quote-unquote everybody else. People who pose a clear and prison danger to the public safety. Uh, we're not talking about um, doing anything else with them besides incarceration, but there, that leaves literally, well, just lots of other people caught up in the criminal justice system that we can do alternatives, we can employ alternatives and do something else with them. Do I have that right? You do have that right, uh, though the conversation
1: is changing. If you looked at, at what Texas did in the few, first few states that engaged in this process in 2007, seven, eight, and 2009, uh, you would see... Uh, Uh, Fewer reforms and reforms that were mostly focused on slowing the revolving door, Mm -hmm. particularly responding differently to violations of probation and parole and making sure that that violations – and violators are held accountable for those violations through various means, whether it 's curfew or community service uh, or short jail stays, but not through revocation back to a twenty nine thousand dollar a year taxpayer funded prison cell that uh, there were more effective, less expensive ways to deal with violators. If you look the last three years and the re- the comprehensive reform packages that are placed uh, that have been passed in Mississippi and in Utah and South Dakota, and Georgia and, and North Carolina. Um, these are much more comprehensive packages that look at the front end of the system and particularly at property offenders and drug offenders. And in many cases, change those laws directly up front to say you know, certain offenders who we have been sending to prison shouldn't be going to prison at all in the first place. Uh, one of the most common reforms has been to change the felony theft threshold, uh, which determines whether something is a mis- misdemeanor or a felony and eligible for state prison. A number of states have raised those thresholds and also changed the thresholds of drug quantities and the amount of drugs that uh, trigger felony level uh, and- penalties and prison exposure. And so, uh, as that, as this has happened, I think it's opened up the conversation. I mean, Len, you're probably aware that there's a group out there now called cut 50, uh, and actually several groups, which now have as their outright objective to cut the prison population in half over the next several years. Mm-hmm. And, I don't think you would have seen that back in 2007. I don't think anybody uh, would have bothered trying to make that suggestion. Uh, It may be a big stretch at this point, but um, enough people think that uh, the problem is big enough and that the solutions are now uh, sort of exposed, that we know what to to do, that we might – you know, that's worth, it's, a, it's a goal that's worth talking about.
0: We're halfway through the program. Our guest today is Adam Gelb, the director of the Public Safety Performance Project at the Pew Charitable Trust, www.pewtrust.org slash public safety, www.pewtrust.org public safety. Uh, again, as I said at the beginning of the program, I'll say it now, Pew has certainly been a leader and some will suggest the leader in terms of fundamental change within the criminal justice system, which is the title of today's program. Uh, full disclosure: Adam and I both work with each other in the state of Maryland, and I'll tell this story very quickly. Adam and we're sitting. I was sitting with Public Safety Secretary Bishop Robinson years ago, and he came to me. Uh, oh, I came to him in his office, and he. I sat down, and he goes, "Sipes, do you know how many people uh, are uh, violators of parole and probation uh, from our intake population here in the state of Maryland?" And I said, "Mr. Secretary, I have no idea." and He goes, 70 percent," and then. And he looked at me rather sternly and said, do you mean to tell me all 70 percent of our intakes, all of these people, each and every one of them really needed to come off the street, uh, really were a clear and present danger to public safety? And uh, and I said, well, Mr. Secretary, that's probably a very good question. We've gone from that very good question to actually operationalizing that concept. Um, Who do we take back into the prison system and why and under what circumstances, correct?
1: That's absolutely right. This has been the biggest area of reform. As I mentioned, states have been at it for quite long. I wish we had national data on this. If we did, I suspect it would show that uh, across the country, the percent of prison admissions uh, that are offenders from probation and parole being returned for technical violations has has dropped, and, I, and I'd hope that it has dropped fairly substantially. This is the area, perhaps the strongest consensus around the country.
0: You know, the interesting part is that, you know, you're talking about justice reinvestment, and you're talking about the idea of uh, taking whatever savings states have and reinvest them back into um, um, either drug treatment or, or parole and probation so they can do a better job. All of this comes with agreement on people on both sides of the political spectrum. So now, this is not just an issue that is driven by, if you will, the left. Um, The People who are staunch conservatives are also uh, behind this. They want to see a more efficient criminal justice system do a better job, and they feel that if they do a better job, and if they use um, research and best practices, it's going to cost that state less. So what they're looking for is efficiency and a greater impact. So you have all sides of the political spectrum supporting um, justice reinvestment or fundamental change within the criminal justice system, correct?
1: That's exactly right. And I think this is where the influence of Texas is once again felt. And that is that the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which participated in the efforts uh, back in 2005, 2007, that we've spoken of, uh, has taken what happened in Texas on the road, if you will. And, um, as a state-based conservative think tank, uh, made connections with other leading conservatives uh, who were starting to say supportive things about uh, justice reform, being being concerned about mandatory minimums and the separation of powers and some constitutional concerns there, as well as the overall size of a correction system, which as you know, uh, our report from Pew in early 2008, I called one in a hundred, where we counted and documented that for the first time, The nation's uh, total incarcerated population had reached one out of every 100 adults in this country Mm -hmm. being behind bars. Mm -hmm. That uh, that conservatives felt like that was not something that was consistent with principles of limited government, which is a separate concept of of obviously from fiscal discipline. But you have now uh, this organization called Right on Crime that pulls together people like Newt Gingrich and Grover Norquist and Richard Viguerie and Ken Cuccinelli and others who, for a variety of reasons and conservative principles that also include family preservation and, 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 of course, at its core public safety, are saying there are more effective, less expensive ways for the government to secure the public safety.
0: Okay. One of the things I want you to do at this this time, Adam, is to paint a picture as to where we could be, where we should be within the next five or ten years. But I do want to throw some caveats up here. I mean, you've got over 30 states involved in this. It's a national discussion. Uh, It seems to be picking up steam. We're moving in the right direction. But let me throw a a couple roadblocks in the conversation. Uh, The rate of uh, the the numbers, uh, sheer numbers, and the rates of incarceration, they decreased, but they haven't decreased that much. So there still seems I I know in some states there's been a significant decrease. New York comes to mind. But the the aggregate the national numbers uh, if they're coming down, they're coming down very slowly. So people still seem to be vested in this concept of incarceration. Um, And so there still seems to be a sense of, okay, we need to change it, but let's move very slowly. Uh, Let's move very cautiously. Um, so am I right or wrong and is that a roadblock is it going to take a long period of time to do this and once we get beyond that what would happen five years ten years down the road
1: I, I think you're right this is this is tough to characterize because a few years ago I think everybody thought that the prison population was uh going to defy the law of physics, right? Everything that that goes up must come down. And yet for 38 years in a row, the prison population went up. And I -hmm. I, I don't know if anybody you would have asked in 2005, Mm -hmm. or 7, are are we going to see an actual uh, decrease in the prison population or the incarceration rate? And and I don't think you would have many takers on that. So the fact that we did go steadily up for nearly four decades, since the early 70s, and then actually level off and start to bend down, uh, is a sea change in and of itself. Uh, The 1 in a 100 from 2007 actually became 1 in 110 at the end of 2013. And I think when the Justice Department releases the the full uh, census from the end of 2014, I think we'll actually see it uh, down another couple of notches. So sort of a full 10% reduction in the nation's total incarceration rate, and that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, the question you're asking about sort of how low can we go is, is obviously a crystal ball kind of question I couldn't, I couldn't answer, but I think the research supports that it could go a good bit lower without endangering public safety.
0: Veterans courts. I just did a program on veterans courts with the National Institute of Corrections, and I don't want to have a discussion about veterans courts, but that's one example of diverting people out of the criminal justice system, drug courts, family courts, parole courts, um, the idea of not everybody needs to go back. There are other mechanisms to um, to use instead of putting people in prison or putting people back in prison, uh, reducing the sentences uh, for individuals. We now have a case through the Federal Sentencing Commission that uh, 8,000 individuals came out of the federal prison system, approximately um, uh, 10% of their sentence early, and I think it averaged out to about two years. And, and through their leaving um, uh, federal prisons, and I forget the total number, but I think it approaches 40,000. So you have these efforts throughout the country to shorten sentences, to provide alternatives, not to send people automatically back to prison, uh, and yet to hold individuals. Accountable with the Project Hope out of Hawaii that's just now being replicated in two states uh, through the Bureau of Justice Assistance, uh, you, know, pro- you know, providing arrest. Um, and uh, every time the person does something wrong, and for a very short prison um, uh, jail stays, one day, two days, three days, depending upon the circumstances, that seems to cut down on recidivism considerably in technical violations. So, again, there's all sorts of different ways of approaching this that, that I think is building towards a critical mass I want you to define what the critical mass could be
1: I wish I could, uh, but you're, you're putting your finger on something that's very important here, and it goes to that second myth I, I mentioned up front, which is the lack of a relationship between length of stay and recidivism. And the Hawaii Hope, which was started by a former federal prosecutor, became a, a judge in state court in Hawaii, uh, is, is maybe the ultimate example of that. I mean, people who were doing long stints are now, uh, recidivating less with the, uh, at a couple days in jail. And so that kind of evidence is really starting to be produced and to make its way into policymakers' hands. And we we just sort of politically speaking then, uh, that doesn't automatically produce change, uh, and there still are plenty of people who think that the best way to reduce crime is to lock up people and to keep them there as long as possible. And I think the a couple things that are happening uh, across the country right now uh, do uh, suggest that uh, additional reform or deeper reform are going to become more difficult. And one is the uh, increase in the heroin problem, and second is the reported increase in murders in some cities across the country. And
0: violent and violent uh, crime beyond murders. So so we're, we're we're dealing with that issue as well.
1: Yes, no doubt about that, that is on these conversations. Now, I think the uh, many of the commentators on this, and mostly the people who've been asked to weigh in on why is this happening, why might we be seeing an increase in, in violent crime and murders in, in some cities across the country, uh, most of them have pointed to uh, factors that have nothing to do with the corrections and and sentencing uh, systems or reforms. Uh, They've talked, in fact, about the increase in opioid addiction um, and heroin markets that have sprung up uh, around that. They've talked about many other factors. Uh, Those who have talked about repeat offenders being responsible for this. And of course, repeat offenders are a, con- a contributor to crime. That's why we have high revocation rates. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, it's really important to note that the number of prison releases last year, 2014, were down 15 percent from their peak in 2008. So it's not as if the numbers support at all a notion that some kind of a big increase in offender releases has any connection whatsoever to do with a rise in the, in the actual crime rate.
0: But what we have to do, we, within the criminal justice system, we have to struggle through all of these issues, whether they be policy, whether they be philosophical, whether they be crime-related issues, uh, but this is not something that's going to go away. Fundamental change within the criminal justice system seems to be here and, seem, and I'm, I'm guessing that it will grow because, again, I'll go back to veterans courts. Uh, I know I'm cherry-picking, uh, but you have a lot of people from the military, um, ex-military, and they end up uh, in the criminal justice system. They, some end up in prison, and yet within the military community, within the veterans community, they flood that person in terms of mentorship. It's just not the criminal justice system. I've never seen so many mentors come out of the woodwork to help um, an individual brother or sister in arms when they've made a mistake or committed a crime and, and they're caught up in the criminal justice system. So these sort of things seem to be inevitable. Uh, I'm not quite sure they're going to stop. It's just a matter of providing best practices and guiding them in a way that uh, all people can agree upon.
1: I think that's spot on, Len. Forty years ago, more than 40 years ago now, when we started down this prison-building path as a nation, we, quite frankly, didn't know very much about what works to stop the revolving door. We didn't have an evidence base of, of effective practices of change of offender behavior. Uh, now we do. Uh, we know that if we use risk-needs assessments, we can figure out what levels to supervise people uh, at and what programs to put them in and match them to appropriate uh, treatments that that will tackle their uh, criminal risk factors. We know that if we use SWIFT and certain sanctions, like in the Hawaii HOPE program, that uh, we can uh, can change their behavior through that kind of strategy uh, as well. Uh, We know that offering rewards for positive progress, not just sanctions uh, when you mess up, uh, can be a powerful motivator for change. And many other sort of building blocks of, an effective correction system. And the research base is there, no magic bullets, uh, but when you do the things that the research says uh, work, you can have a significant impact on recidivism and policymakers are becoming more and more aware of that. And that's why I think you're right that over time there may be some political cycles and things that, that occur that uh, feel like in the short term will be a drag. On reform momentum, uh, that this evidence base will continue to build, and as long as there are uh, organizations and effective mechanisms for making sure that policymakers have access to that information, I think we're going to see this issue continue to move in a in a smarter in a more cost-effective way.
0: We've been talking to Adam Gelb, always a fascinating conversation, director of the Public Safety Performance Project at the Pew Charitable Trust, www.pewtrust.org slash public safety. Ladies and gentlemen, this is DC Public Safety. We appreciate your comments. We even appreciate your criticisms, and we want everybody to have themselves a very pleasant day. Mm-hmm.